0: Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, Jonathan Freeman is at the helm running this podcast and he's got a guest and that is Mark Sims. Good morning, Jonathan. How are you?
2: Good morning, Eric. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for uh, having us. I'm uh, really excited to be part of this uh, podcast series. You know, Kyle and Derek have been having all the fun, and finally now I can be part of it.
1: It's time to shine, baby. It's time to shine. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm
2: on the spot, so I can't let anyone down on this one. So that's right. Yeah, well, welcoming uh, everyone who's listening and glad to uh, be here with a very exciting guest. That's Mark Sims, who's the president of global business development at Cap Alternatives. He's uh, one of our many experts when it comes to risk management, and enterprise risk management. And we have been working with Mark, both in conjunction with um, some clients, as well as uh, generally looking at his structure for our own use. And as the chief operating and compliance officer for Centura, it's core to my job function to look at our risks. Um, how do we manage them? How do we protect with insurance or other structures? And the... CAP-ALT alternative is something that uh, something that piqued our interest for a variety of reasons. We'll talk about some of those benefits later. But before diving in, I would like to give a little bit more background. I was first introduced to captives in a former life. And uh, at the time, obviously, I understood risk management. I was selling a risk management product um, at that point in my career. But I never really thought of captives as something that would really apply to a small business. And so as our clients uh, from a wealth management company, uh, many of them are business owners. They are constantly grappling with risks of all different natures, internal, external. And given that we sit here um, today in the midst of a pandemic, I think the environment is ripe for us to really delve into some of these unusual business risks that most people just don't think about insuring for. Um, I never would have thought of insuring for a pandemic or a business interruption. Um, it's a pretty extreme scenario, but that's exactly what Mark's structure and, and products do. Hmm. So with that, let me uh, hand it over to Mark, who has been in uh, the business for over 25 years. He's an expert when it comes to talking about both captive structures as well as generally how businesses can manage their, their risk. Um, I'm excited to have him on board. I've uh, heard him speak in other forums and I think he will hopefully enlighten our audience today with uh, some things that they've never never even heard of or uh, thought of for their own business. So with that, Mark, let me turn it over to you with a little bit of uh, backdrop for you and uh, what what, uh, makes you tick.
3: Thank you, Jonathan. It uh, certainly is a pleasure to uh, to participate in this podcast today as, as Jonathan said, I am uh, president of cap alt uh, Cap Alt is an acronym for captive alternatives. Our company sets up and manages what we like to call private insurance structures. We are uh, an alternative to the captive insurance company structure that that have been out there for quite some time. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into the reasons why we have uh, turned away from captives. In the general sense, for the last several years, um, I have been with the company for the last 21 years. Uh, that cap vault was created in 1999. Our home office is based out of Atlanta, Georgia. By by way of background, uh, I went to Indiana University and have been in the in the financial services and the insurance industry my entire career uh, since uh, coming out of college in 1986. So that's a little bit about myself and about our company.
2: Thanks, Mark. Well, um, I also came to know that uh, you're a you're an afflicted golfer. You uh, enjoy golf. <laughs> uh, what, what, what's your favorite course that you've ever played?
3: Uh, actually, you know, I played a number of courses across the country, and 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 I actually was going to go play San Andrews and do a Scotland trip uh, in May but uh, the pandemic had uh, different plans for that but uh, there is a course that, that I love to play it's actually in Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic so I can't remember the name of it but I've played it a couple of times it's pretty challenging but also you know it, you never have a bad shot cuz you're always looking at the ocean so uh, <laughs> those are it, some it, great
2: great it, courses
3: yeah yeah there's there's a lot of great courses in the Caribbean but that's that's my favorite
2: well, fantastic. Um, good, good to know. And uh, hopefully one of these days we can get out on the golf course. Maybe it's uh, at one of your annual seminars or, or events that you do down down there. Tell me a little bit more about the clients that your company serves. What What is the characteristics of for those that are listening today can really, if you're a business owner, so that you can really think about does this apply to me? Or should I be even, you know, is it do I care about this?
3: Right. So the majority of our clients, if not all, are, in most cases, uh, closely held business owners or, or private companies. Um, we don't have any public companies that are in our structure to date, although we, we do might see some potential changes with that with regards to our structure. Uh, it's usually companies that uh, are, are cash flowing, profitable. They are looking to insure against these enterprise risks, which are the low probability, high severity type risk, as you mentioned earlier, the risks that businesses have, but they typically don't insure against those or buy insurance from a commercial carrier because the probability is low, they're typically expensive, and they don't buy these from the commercial coverage for those two reasons, because if they manage their risk and have little or no claims, they have nothing to show for it other than the opportunity you know, to pay that renewal premium every year, and in most commercial carriers, would love for businesses to insure against these to buy insurance for these enterprise risks because of the probability is so low, you know, insurance companies in general, uh, at the end of the day, they're really not in the business to pay claims, although it's, it's a very important function to what they do, but they're in the business to manage risk and make money. So how do they do that? They, they take clients to an underwriting process. They're looking for good risk and they hope that the business owner will manage those risks. And with these enterprise risks, we're finding that business owners do manage these anyway, even if they're not buying insurance. Because if any one of these enterprise risks would occur or one of these uh, fortuitous events would occur, it could be financially devastating or catastrophic to the business, such as loss of a key supplier. You know, we you mentioned the pandemic. Uh, a lot of supply chains have been interrupted. A lot of loss of contracts have happened uh, companies have lost key talent during the pandemic. There have been uh, legal defense. You know These are risks that businesses have that you can insure and you can insure through a captive or a private insurance structure. And it makes it a little bit more palatable to pay those premiums, which are a tax deduction and a deductible expense if in the event it's going into your own insurance structure you don't have these claims, then you get to keep that underwriting profit. And underwriting profit for insurance companies are all the premiums that are paid to them that didn't go to operating expenses to operate the company or to claims. So that's deemed underwriting profit. All insurance companies, what they do with their underwriting profit, they invest it. They invest it in the market for investment income, real estate, those kind of things. Well, that's what a client can do or a business owner can do inside an insurance structure they can do the exact same thing. So what they're doing is they're paying these premiums, uh, which a business owner uh, had, is, uh, buys insurance all the time. Uh, they're, they're a necessary and ordinary business expense. They go into the structure. Now when they manage that risk, they get to invest those dollars just like the insurance company does for potential claims down the road or for you know, a war chest of funds that they could have access to at some point down the road.
2: So Mark, let me ask you a clar- so clarifying here. So we're talking about a business owner. Normally they're, they're used to buying insurance, whether that's insurance for health or insurance for auto or just general, uh, business liability. So this is Correct. what you're talking about is something on top of that, right? This is things that are out there looming risks that typically they're not thinking about their insurance brokers, not come to them and asking about these things. This is stuff that's, that's really devastating to the business or areas that are what you might call differential, but areas that aren't being covered that you can now add a layer on top to. And ultimately you're, you're basically starting your own side insurance business, right? Isn't that effectively what it is?
3: That's correct. Yeah. And, and you're right. These are, you know, most, all businesses are buying, you know, what we call high frequency, low severity type risk workers, compensation, general liability, commercial auto, healthcare, um, they, this, these are coverages that would be in addition to those coverages that they're buying that would protect the enterprise or the business itself against one of these unlikely uh, catastrophic fortuitous events that could occur.
2: So, what's an example of a kind of a current client or someone that's recently set one up? What industries do you see them more prevalent in, or is this broad to just about anybody that's um, a sizable business? And what does sizable mean?
3: Sure. I, uh, it's interesting. We we have all different types of industries in the structure because the, indus- the, the the businesses are not immune. All businesses have key customers, key contracts. They have key suppliers. All businesses have regulatory and administrative type risk where if they're ever audited or investigated by the federal, state, or local agency. Uh, all businesses have key talent. All businesses are not immune to lawsuits. <laughs> Legal defense is, is another so we're, we're, it's not industry specific that this might make sense for. However, we have seen uh, a significant amount of uh, clients in the medical industry uh, and also in the financial services industry. Because in, 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 what's interesting, you think about those two industries, <laughs> the, the, none of them are immune to lawsuits. They're 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 regulated. Uh, they have key people. They have key contracts. Uh, but but all businesses will will have these types of enterprise risk uh, out there. Size of company, I I think that any company that is doing I think the minimum size premium that that where a being part of a private insurance structure might make sense is about a hundred thousand dollars a premium. You're talking about businesses that are probably doing a gross revenue, gross revenue, not profit, but gross revenues of greater or north of Maybe a million and a half or two million in revenue. Uh, if they're if they're companies or businesses that that are that are grossing more than that, then they they might be a candidate to to ensure some of these risks. Uh, let me and I'll give you an example. You did ask for an example. We we have a, a longstanding client who's been with us for quite some time. They um, they grow cucumbers. <laughs> they're out in northern California, and they um, they manufacture pickles. And they provide the pickles for McDonald's, Burger King, Subway, uh, Cisco Foods, basically west of the Mississippi River. So and
2: I've definitely just, eaten their product,
3: I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you have. <laughs> they are um, a fourth generation company, um, and it's being operated now by, by three siblings. And one of the siblings who was in charge of operations, as they were introduced to us in our structure, and I was going through the list of coverages when I got to loss of key customer. He stopped me and he said, Whoa, whoa, you mean you can insure against the loss of a key customer? I said, Yes, you can. He said, Well, Subway uh, is 40% of our revenue, and this company does in excess of a hundred million dollars in revenue. So that resonated with them, and, and they've been in our structure now for five, uh, six, going on six years now, and they ended up buying about 18 different types of these coverages. Premium was just um north of 4.5 million dollars that they've been doing that they've been they they deducted all this time goes into the structure and they've had no claims so right now their assets are in excess of about 30 million and um whenever we have our annual meeting with them they're always saying you know we pinch ourselves because we can't believe that we have this excess uh and now they're looking at other types of coverages that they might want to ensure now that they have this excess sitting inside their their assets, so um, there's, that's a success story. Uh, we Definitely. have had clients that have had claims uh, that have saved their company. So uh, it, it 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 answers all uh, concerns for a business owner.
2: That's fantastic. Great great example there. So you know, given that we're in the, the this pandemic, have you seen any? Uh, I guess. Peaks or uh, free, high frequency claims coming through business interruption is that how has that impacted the structure and or just that I know in the industry insurance industry generally where up, there's a big upheaval in terms of business interruption coverage.
3: Yeah, great question. Uh, business interruption in and of itself is not a policy. Business interruption is a category, and all of, most of those business uh, coverages I mentioned uh, loss of key customer, loss of key supplier those are business categorized as business interruptions what could cause a business interruption a pandemic could cause a business interruption uh, now we have had we we have not seen a big uptick in claims filed which was surprising to us we were kind of anticipating that although we're not we're not out of this pandemic as of yet wow. um, but we have we've had uh, have had claims filed we've had some claims paid but not to the extent of losses that one w- might imagine. And what that really told me was not a, not all businesses suffered from the pandemic. Now, we didn't have a lot of people in the hotel industry uh, or the restaurant industry or, or the airline industry. Uh, we did have some clients in those industries that did file claims, but the losses weren't significant or catastrophic that you might think, which tells me that not everybody was affected uh, from a business standpoint, but we've also had some of our clients say, did I buy loss a key customer last year? Did I buy loss a key supplier? No, you did not. It was offered to you, by I want it this year. So right. it has it has made them more, yeah, it changes their perspective. Exactly.
2: Oh, that's, so let me uh, segue into uh, just generally the private insurance structure. Now, if any listeners are more savvy and have done any research about 831 uh, which is part of the uh, IRS tax code. This is effectively, a, a, uh, it was enabled by the IRS through uh, the 831 uh, section of the code. Can you tell me a little bit more how this differs from a, a uh, what's called a captive or a small business captive?
3: Sure. So the um, captive insurance companies in and of themselves have been around since the 50s. All the Fortune 500 companies have been uh, insuring their own risk inside their own cap, what they call what are called captive insurance companies. Captives uh, came about uh, the gentleman who coined that term is a guy named Fred Rice. He was an insurance broker for a sheet and tube company out of uh, Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, during the Korean War, uh, the price of steel was rising and so did the cost of insurance. And this broker said, This is crazy. Let's form our own insurance company. So, in essence, that's what happened. And he termed it captive, so, which means it's a, a captive insurance company. It's a separate insurance company. It's a separate entity, uh, and they called them captives because the insurance that was being offered by the captive was captive to the business it it was insuring. Um, so over the years, these captive insurance companies grew for the large, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 1,000 type companies, but it didn't give a lot of relief to the small to mid market. Uh, businesses. So in 1986, the United States Congress pa- uh, passed code section, as you mentioned, 831B. And 831B says if you are a small captive insurance company uh, and your premiums at that time were less than $1.2 million per year, then all those premiums that you paid into your own captive insurance company that and didn't go towards, and those premiums that float in there didn't go to costs, operated or claims, was underwriting profit. And 831B deemed those not to be taxed. However, uh, these 831B captives, that, 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 what they did with that underwriting of the profit was they invested it and they earned investment income. Again, back to how insurance companies make money. And 831B code section said that you had to pay taxes on that investment income. All 831B captives or captives themselves are C corps and their taxic, corporate tax rates, which the investment income was taxed at 21%. Today, that's what they are. That was a very tax-efficient way to build a war test of funds to mitigate against your own risk. Now, captive insurance companies are insurance companies. That's what they are. And they have to meet the, the, the rules and definitions of an insurance company. So what are those? Well, you have to have risk sharing. You have to have risk distribution, which is the heart of insurance companies. You're sharing risk with others. You have to have properly priced premiums that are determined by an outside independent actuarial firm that uses generally accepted actuarial methodologies and principles of determining risk and premium. You have to have policies. What do those policies say? Industry standard policy language for these risks. So those are really the criteria to meet the definition of insurance company. If you did that, your captive was deemed an insurance company. Well, a lot of these 831B captive insurance companies over the last several years, there were captive management companies that were established, companies like ourselves, to set up and manage these captives. But they, they wanted to use these captives more, not for insurance, but for wealth transfer, for tax savings and so a lot of these captain management companies started really skirting the rules or seeing how far they could stretch the rubber band on the rules on risk sharing for example a lot of these business owners said well i'm not going to pay any have any claims and i don't want to share my risk with others and so therefore these captain managers management companies started kind of making their own rules well it caught the eye of the irs you know when you tax deduct something what was happening was The premiums were deductible. They went into these captives. They were taxed efficiently while they were growing. And then the owners of the captives then established to be, you know, a generational skipping trust, an irrevocable trust, a wealth transfer vehicle, which you could do. But the IRS didn't like that. You deduct, you defer, you tax free. That's probably going to catch their attention. Well, they started looking at some of these 831B tax elected captives uh, in the time uh, around 2003, 4, 5, and they began to attack certain things. They attacked the premium pricing first. Well, they, they lost those battles because these premiums were actually determined by an independent actuarial firm. Then they started looking at policy language. Well, these really aren't risks. Well, you can go to Chubb and you could go to Aon. Uh, and by these same types of enterprise risk coverage. So they lost those battles. So they really started focusing in about 2010, 11, and 12. Are they really risk sharing? And what are the risk sharing rules? And so what's happened is the IRS finally in 2016, 17, and 18, finally won the tax court, ruled in favor of the IRS on three cases, called Abrahami, uh, Reserve Mechanical, and Syzygy. These are all captive insurance companies that the IRS challenged and won. And they, the one big focus they're looking at is risk sharing and risk distribution and what they call cycle flow of funds. Now, we began to see all of this back in the early 2012-13, and we began to look for a different structure. And uh, we found that uh, uh, with um, with a, we call it now the private insurance structure, where It gets it away from the captive insurance company itself and from the 831B tax election. The IRS has made 831B tax elections a transaction of interest now. So you have to file this disclosure form, form 8886 to the IRS. It says, Hey, I got, I got an 831B captive. I've had people ask me, does that increase the likelihood of an audit? And I, don't know about that, but it certainly doesn't decrease it. Uh, We moved into a structure in Puerto Rico. It's regulated by the Puerto Rico Department of Insurance where it's an already established insurance structure and what our clients have is not a captive, but they have a segregated account inside of an already established reinsurance company to how where we can meet risk distribution. The policies are not issued by the captive um, and the way the premium and the risk flow it meets the IRS safe harbor guidelines for risk distribution. So we got completely away from captives in 2015. Is when we moved to that structure well in 2016 is when the irs came out with the transaction ventures so in all the court cases so we were ahead of all that uh when we moved so
2: basically you've you've you you saw the where the abuses were you created a structure that takes the advantages and benefits of of having a captive but putting it in a a different this puerto rico uh, jurisdiction to allow for that shared sharing of risk meeting the essential criteria of that risk-sharing, but now it, there's other benefits that come with the structure that, that are separate and distinct from the other uh, captive-type structures, correct?
3: That's correct. That is correct. So Puerto Rico um, is an interesting jurisdiction. Um, it's a, it's a, obviously, it's a U.S. commonwealth. Uh, they're under U.S. federal law. If you're under U.S. customs, you don't have to have a passport to go to Puerto Rico. Uh, But what's unique about Puerto Rico as a U.S. Commonwealth is in 1952, our United States Congress granted them their own governance, their own sovereignty. So what that means, to especially to our structure, is they have their own insurance laws, they have their own corporation laws, and they have their own tax laws. The IRS does not have taxing authority in Puerto Rico. So the Department of Insurance, which, by the way, the Department of Insurance of Puerto Rico is the only – non-U.S. state to have the accreditation of the NAIC the NAIC is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, it's the federal governing body that kind of sets forth rules and procedures and protocols for all the 50 state departments of insurance to follow if you follow those rules then you kind of get the rubber stamp of the approval from the U.S. federal government that you run a very rigorous regulatory uh, department of insurance so Puerto Rico has that same accreditation, even though they're not a state. So it's a very uh, um, a well-run Department of Insurance. Uh, I will tell you. Prior to going to Puerto Rico, we worked in domiciles in North Carolina, uh, South Carolina, Utah, Nevada, Vermont. Internationally, we were, we worked in the Caymans, Turks and Caicos, Barbados, British Virgin Islands, Turks and.
2: Uh, <laughs> You've been all around so the world. We, we've
3: been all. And I will tell you, when we moved to Puerto Rico, they were the most stringent on us. They did a quite uh, a heavy due diligence on us before we could operate there. But they're the most entrepreneurially driven jurisdiction of anyone we've dealt with. And we got our structure license over there and moved all our clients there um, on September, in September 2015. And there has been no looking back ever since. Now, here's the benefit to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has their own taxing structure. So our accounts are not taxed in the U.S., so therefore you're not making the 831B tax election. If you're not making the 831B tax election, then you're not subject to the transaction of interest filing. You're not subject to any U.S. filings. Uh, the, the accounts over there are taxed uh, under the Puerto Rico taxing authority, which the, the net operating profit of each account which is the premiums you pay each year, less claims, less expenses, plus investment income. The N O P every year, the first 1.2 million is tax exempt, and any amount above that only pays a tax of 4%. So it's even more tax efficient than the 831B, captives, which were the most efficient, most efficient until this. Um, there are no ownership restrictions, so those clients who had those 831B captives owned in trust are owned. Uh, in some other form other than the business it was insuring, there are no restrictions in this structure for that as well. So it it, it came with many other benefits, as well as getting away from the 831B captives.
2: That's fascinating. Um, so, you know, I, when we were looking at this, I was a little, you know, when it, when I heard Puerto Rico, I was like, well, they've, they've been dealing with a lot of uh, unrest down there financially. Is that present any risk to a business owner, given um, everything that's been going on with hurricanes and the like?
3: Now, A great question. Uh, so, as I mentioned, we, we got licensed over there on September 1st, 2015. In 2016, they filed bankruptcy. Uh, and in 2017, they, you know, they had the hurricane, the Category 5 hurricane. Or was that 18? I can't remember which. Regardless, when they filed bankruptcy, uh, we had some concerns. So we went back to the Puerto Rican government with this concern. First of all, none of our clients, the money is in Puerto Rico. They're not in Puerto Rico banks. They're not in Puerto Rico financial institutions. The money is managed here with U.S. investment firms here in the United States. So the money's not there. Uh, But, uh, you know, they had had some economic issues when we got licensed. Um, And so Puerto Rico... Wanted us to have our clients have their money in Puerto Rico financial t- institutions, but we said, Are you kidding? You've seen your economy. That would be a non starter for some of these business owners back here in the United States. So they allowed us to use U.S. investment firms. 2016, they filed bankruptcy. So we went back to the Puerto Rican government and requested uh, uh, what they call a tax decree that says if you make any changes to the tax benefits of this structure or to the structure itself. We would like to have our clients grandfathered for 15 years. Puerto Rico came back and not only did they grant us the tax decree, but they gave us 15 years with two automatic 15 year renewals. So we basically have this structure in place begin in 2016 for the next 45 years. So we've got 40 more years under this current structure. So that seemed to to uh, ease the concern of their economic turmoil. In 2017, they had the hurricane. Now, the good news is that none of the operations of the entire structure itself are done in Puerto Rico. They're all done out of our Atlanta offices uh, and all of our staff in, in Atlanta. So the only thing that's really uh, that we're doing with the Puerto Rico um government and the Puerto Rico structure has taken advantage of their legislative insurance and tax laws. Um, So we, so that's, that has eased the concern. Now, since those two events, the, the bankruptcy and hurricane, and of course they've had earthquake too, (laughs) um, has their economy is turning. It's turning around for the better, um, which we like. And and you mentioned earlier, uh, we do hold an annual conference, for all of our clients and for all of our advisors uh in in san juan uh so people can come to puerto rico and look yep they do have power (laughs) um but but it's robust it's vibrant there um and and it gives our clients and advisors who who refer business to to our structure some comfort and ease They, they hear from the puerto rico government they hear from some of our clients they hear from our our service providers, our actuary, or accountant. Um, so we're doing everything we can to ease that concern, which really isn't that much of a concern.
2: Got it. Thanks, Mark. So you know, I've heard some great things. Uh, let's say I'm a business owner. I've I've liked the idea of what you're talking about. What is it? You know, what is it? How do I go about setting this up? What's the cost of setting it up? You know, give us some the tangible uh, details around. Uh, actually getting this off the ground and if we wanted to you know someone like us wanted to put put it in place.
3: Sure so um, let's see at the time we moved to Puerto Rico we also stopped uh, charging a fee to provide what we call a risk coverages and premium funding analysis. In other words if a a business owner wants to know well what risks do I have and what would the premiums be then we would take them through uh, feasibility analysis, which means we need to gather their data. Um, and the data we gather, we have them complete a risk assessment questionnaire. We do get copies of current commercial policies. One of the things that uh, the actuaries look for, you know, I mentioned that that the model is not built to do more traditional type high frequency risks like work comp or commercial auto or GL. But but a lot of those commercial policies may have what's called difference in conditions in those policies. In other words, what they won't cover, exclusions, gaps in coverage. Some of those policies may have deductibles. You can insure against those items in our structure. I mean, you still have the commercial care do the primary coverage, but if there's exclusions or gaps or deductibles, you can insure against that. So that's why we like to get the commercial policies to review. And we look at the company's financials, which is uh, the most recent filed business tax returns and what their gross revenues are going to be for the year they're in. So this year will be 2020. And all that information we gather. Now, there's no cost to go through this process. We send all that information to the outside actuarial firm, and they will determine what risks you have and what those premiums would be for those risks. Then we send that back to the client. Say, here's your, if you will, smorgasbord of coverages. You can pick and choose, and the, and the coverages come with policy limits.
2: So it's a menu they that those, they can pick from.
3: It, it's a menu they can pick from, and there's no cost to do that. You know, we, we decided back in 2015, you know, in the absence of value fees are an issue. Let's, pr- let's show them the value first. And that's worked really well for us. A lot of captive managers will still charge to do that if you want to have your own captive. Now, once they decide, All right, here's the coverages and the premiums. That's when the the costs are incurred to move forward. There is a setup cost to get this, this account set up. And so what we have, they're called segregated asset plans. That's what the clients have. They're segregated accounts. They're not companies. They're not entities. They're basically funds that sit inside this licensed reinsurance company in Puerto Rico. And that's been our model. We, we have that model to, do the, to, to make sure we meet all the IRS safe harbor guidelines on risk sharing and risk distribution. Um, and what that, what, to get that segregated account established in Puerto Rico, we charge a one-time setup fee of 6% of that premium, that first year's premium. So if the premium was $100,000, they pay a one-time setup fee to us of $6,000. If it's 300000 it's an $18,000 setup fee. That's first year set up
2: make sense okay
3: the other the other first year outlay is uh, the Puerto Rico Department of Insurance requires and and captives if you set up a captive there's always you have to the, the, the jurisdictions or the departments of insurance require startup capital so Puerto Rico's capital requirement is one third of that premium so if you're let's go back to our example of a $100,000 premium then they they would have to deposit an additional $33,000 into the account, the segregated asset account, to meet Puerto Rico's capital requirement. The technical term is called securitization. Since these segregated accounts are not companies, they're not treated as capital, but the technical term is called fund held under securitization agreement. That one-third goes into the account and it's invested. Okay, so you have the setup cost you got the securitization or capital of one-third. Those are first-year only. Ongoing costs are dependent upon the premium size. They start at a high of 10%, and they can go down incrementally the more premium that's paid into the structure. Now, of that annual cost, 6% goes. We use a licensed insurance company to write and bind the risk of policies that there's a fronting fee of 6%. And then the reduction in the fee four we the other four percent or less depending on premium size would go to us to manage and operate the entire structure, which includes all the actuarial annual actuarial underwriting, uh, review to determine risk and premium, the monthly accounting, the account the segregated accounts have to be monthly accounted for that's reported to the Department of Insurance, the issuance of policies, the maintenance of policies, the the tax, uh, the, all the accounting, um, Uh, uh, the annual audit, our entire entire structure is audited every year by RSM, which is a former McGladry CPA firm. Um, uh, Processing of claims, adjudication of claims, anything and everything to do with the operation of the structure itself from a regulatory, legal, accounting standpoint is included in that fee. And that annual cost is deducted out of the premium.
2: Okay, so you have your setup costs you've got your first year premium, you've got your reserve. Those are all kind of your, your getting off the ground. And then on an ongoing basis, you've got your premiums, whatever you've decided on that Chinese menu. And then also with that comes some administration costs, which is what you just described as part of the ongoing uh, overhead of maintaining the structure. So as, as insurance premiums are paid in there's some of it that gets chopped off or you know for claims and then the balance becomes a reserve that then can be invested and grown over time as kind of that underwriting profit that you mentioned right
3: that's correct
2: and so once that's built up you know you've got this fund there i think your your structure allows for some pretty creative ways to, to tap that or access that what are some of the benefits of that structure that then can flow back to the the originator who set up this uh, sap
3: yeah so the the segregated account itself the the asset that sits inside this licensed reinsurance company the licensed reinsurance company is called madison re those segregated accounts technically belong to madison re uh madison re has the rights to the assets in the segregated account only for policy-linked claims so if the business owner has claims Part of that, those claims are paid out of that segregated account. Madre has the rights to those. The uh, then there is there the typically it's the business owner, but the the assets or the fair market value of the assets in the segregated account, which is all the premiums paid, less claims, less expenses, plus all the investment income. That's the how the fair market value is determined of the account is. Uh, the rights to those assets are to a bond investor. So somebody, that one-third securitization or capital also serves as a purchase price for a bond. And the bond investor, in most cases, it's a business owner, it could be an LLC, it could be a trust, there's no restriction on who the bond investor is. The bond is directly linked to the the assets in the segregated account, and the bond investor has all the rights to the segregated account. Uh, when they're ready to exchange those rights. So how do they do that? Well, the bond comes with 10 plan rights. So as they're building surplus inside of this account, and if they wanted to get a distribution of some of those funds, they could exercise one of their 10 10 plan rights. Now, when when they do that, then the money would come out distributed to the bond investor, and it would be taxed at the bond investor's level, which if it's a U.S. resident, is long-term capital gains tax rate. If it's the LLC, it's taxed at the LLC level or the trust level if it's trust. They could also borrow from it. So we have a lot of our clients that have built a, take up the pickle company, right, sitting on $30 million. They have actually borrowed from the account to uh, invest capital into their business. To, they, they, they bought another company. They bought a relish company. Uh, but it and it, and it has to be it has to be a uh, performing loan. They got to pay it back with interest. Uh, so I, I liken this structure to a four hundred one k. In this sense, so there, there's Everybody
2: some has, benefit of there's some yeah. benefit of the uh, you know transition of wealth or the use of it for other purposes outside of the the day to day operations, right?
3: Correct. Correct. Um, you know, a lot of our clients have these, they, they built, we, we have clients have 30, 40, 50 million sitting in these accounts and they want to get to the next generation. So they have the bond investor be a, um, a dynasty trust of some type. Um, but, but, but how this, how this works, I, like I said, I liken it to a 401k in this sense. Everybody has a 401k, right? By the way, in the seventies, the IRS came out and said 401k plans were tax shelter abuse, <laughs> That's because Congress hasn't given a lot of guidance back then, and then they, they came up with these rules. But what, what most employees don't know is they don't own the asset in that four hundred one k. A trust does, because if they owned the asset, they wouldn't get the tax deferral. So part right. of the, the uh, uh, process was to put a trust in place so people can't just be willy nilly with these four hundred one k plans, or they'd lose their tax benefits. But they have the employee has the rights to those assets. When they're ready to exchange those rights and when they do ask for the rights of those assets then they're taxed right or they pay yep. if it's before it's 59 and a half. some they have paid a penalty some 401ks allow for borrowing so madison Reed, the reinsurance company where all these segregated accounts are established is like the 401k trust and the client has the, the bond investor has the rights to those assets when they're ready to exchange those rights and then when they do exchange those rights that's when they're taxed so it works very similar in that regards, the good news about all that is, it's not a captive, and therefore it's not subject to all the captive scrutinies that are going on right now.
2: Yeah, I like that analogy of the 401k and the rights because that I think resonates with me, and I'm sure a lot of others who are quite familiar with all the both the benefits and and the restrictions that go around 401k plans. Uh, right. So thanks, very very enlightening. Um, I think. We're running out of time here, and, and certainly there's been so much shared uh, on this uh, podcast that I'm sure people will have a ton of questions. Um, so if they do have questions, Mark, how do they get a hold of you? What, what information? I know your website's got a lot of resources available. What's the best way to get a hold of you?
3: The best way to get a hold of me is my email. You can email me, um, and that email address is m. Sims, M-S-I-M-S, at captivealternatives.com. It's captivealternatives, plural, dot com. Or you can call me direct. Uh, I'll give my direct number. It's 812-327-3341.
2: And I know Eric will probably provide links to some of those resources as part of this podcast, and people will have access to those as well. Mark, it's been a pleasure, really enjoyed spending the morning here with you, going through this. It's something we've been looking at as a firm and, and certainly recommending to clients who are in that situation of business owners that really trying to think think about alternatives outside the box and really trying to mitigate some of these enterprise risks that uh, they've just not even considered. So I want to thank you for your time and uh, look forward to uh, working with you down the road.
3: Thank you, Jonathan. And I, and I would just I'd like to close with one thing. A lot of people are uh, uh, are skeptical of things like this. I will tell you that um, uh, Jonathan on the call today took us through quite the due diligence process to determine if our structure was legitimate, peeled back the layers of every onion, uh, which I welcomed. Uh, in fact, I think he even ate the core of the onion. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> he, he did do his job on this. Uh, uh, so I certainly enjoyed it, and thanks for having me.
1: Mark, Jonathan and Mark, pleasure. this was this was fantastic. Uh, Mark, it's very obvious and apparent why Jonathan brought you on the show and, and why Centura works with you <laughs> because, <laughs> holy cow, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying I'm glad that years ago I got my scuba diving license because this was not just a fire hose. I felt like I was completely, I don't know, it was like an ocean just pouring on me with all this information and Jonathan said it best when... He said, I know people are going to have questions because obviously this is very complex and you know people need to be reaching out to an expert. So again, he gave us contact information. Jonathan, you're absolutely right. I want to make sure that we get some links in the show notes and we can do that. Jonathan, thank you so much for bringing Mark
2: on. My pleasure, Eric. Thanks for hosting and looking forward to our next podcast.
1: Absolutely. And Mark, thank you so much. You were a fantastic guest.
3: Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it.
1: You bet. And the last thank you always goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory Centura is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.